Well, let's go on a journey once again to the Holy Land tonight, to a place called the Dead Sea. This is our series. Uh, in the comfort of this environment, we've been journeying to the Holy Land, to specific spots uh, for the purpose of deriving from our trip a life lesson. That's what this is called, life lessons from the Holy Land. And what you're viewing now are some scenes in this area called the Dead Sea. It's the southern part of Israel tonight. If you were in the Dead Sea area and looked to the east, you would be looking into Jordan, just to give you some geographic bearing, uh, bearings. If you looked to the right or the west, you would be looking into the hills of Judea, which is part uh, of the nation of Israel. You've heard of Jericho. Jericho is one of the places located in this area. It would be at the northern part of the Dead Sea. We visited Masada in weeks prior to tonight. Masada is in this area, and you might have heard of a place which, Lord willing, we'll go to in one of the subsequent weeks called Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are so very significant, were discovered. So that's the Dead Sea area. One of the most uh, unusual, I guess you could say, features of this body of water, the Dead Sea, is its uh, fairly regular discharge of asphalt. In fact, in the southeastern part of the Dead Sea, uh, probably that is the most likely spot of the two ancient destroyed cities known as Sodom and Gomorrah. And you read in the Bible earlier on in Genesis about how God rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah, wicked cities, fire and brimstone. Well, today and even in that day, because of the asphalt uh, which the Dead Sea uh, discharged, there were frequently occurring tar pits. And some people are of the persuasion that the way God God brought destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah was through lightning, which ignited the uh, tar pits, releasing sulfur and burned the cities uh, down to the ground. Now, I don't know if that's true, but it surely could be true. What I do know is that the Dead Sea is 42 miles long, that's for sure. And at its widest point, it's 11 miles wide. What's even more interesting about it, however, is its depth. First of all, it's below sea level by a lot, 1,385 feet below sea level. Now, you may or may not know that that makes the Dead Sea the lowest point on Earth. Also, the Dead Sea is the deepest saltwater lake on Earth, so it has many distinguishing factors. You see, it's low because it lies on a fault line in the Earth's crust, which is known as the Great Rift Valley. That runs about 4,000 miles long and goes all the way down into Africa. So it's very, very low. Also, the area is intensely dry and very hot. It receives only about four inches of uh, rainfall per year, and the temperatures in the summer average uh, from between 90 degrees to about 104 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. In other words, it's more comfortable than Houston. <laughs> it contains tons and tons of minerals, bromides and chlorides and all of these kinds of 
things in the Dead Sea area, and it always has. As a result, it may be the, Earl, the world's uh, oldest health care resort. Herod the Great, who we spoke of many times before, made use of it for this purpose. Remember, he's the one who had Masada constructed. And he oftentimes went here for the medicinal value of bathing in the mineral-rich Dead Sea waters. Herod the Great was not the only one familiar with this, its uh, health-giving properties. It was also uh, known uh, by Aristotle and uh, the Queen of Sheba. Uh, King Solomon, of course, was there, and Cleopatra, and we know she had beautiful skin. Uh, the movies tell us that. Uh, she, she also uh, made use of the uh, mineral-rich Dead Sea waters. And so, uh, in addition to its minerals, it's almost entirely pollen or allergen-free. And, and so, um, no sinus problems in the Dead Sea area. You can really breathe well there. And not only that, because it is so low down, uh, by the time the sun's ultraviolet rays reach you, uh, they have been dissipated largely, absorbed by the atmosphere. And so you can lie out in the sun with almost no risk of sunburn. Now, because of all of this, even down to this very day, people come from all over the world, not uh, for the biblical significance of the Dead Sea, but because of its um, health-producing healing qualities if you're suffering from chronic skin conditions like psoriasis and all other things that have not been effectively treat, treated otherwise. And so when you go there, you see people, they look like Martians um, uh, wearing uh, mud. I mean, they're just, you, you see little holes for their, their eyes, you know, kind of sticking out. But basically, they, they, they put the Dead Sea salts all over them and so on and so forth. And it's supposed to have uh, curative properties for... Uh, chronic skin conditions. In the Bible, did you know that nowhere in the Bible is this body of water referred to as the Dead Sea? It's interesting to note that. It is referred to in various ways. Uh, in some cases in the Bible, it's called the Salt Sea. In other places, you can find out it's called the Eastern Sea to distinguish it from the Western Sea, which would be do you have any idea what the Western Sea would be? Yeah, the Mediterranean Sea. Now, along the Dead Sea now, as you can see, they've built these magnificent uh, hotels. This is one we stayed in, suffering for Jesus. Yes, someone has to do it. Um, so they, they put up all these kind of spa hotels uh, o over there in the Dead Sea area. And, so that's where we were. Well, anyway, um, you know why it's called the Dead Sea? A fairly modern term, actually. It's called the Dead Sea because except for the exception of some unusual um, algae and other microscopic organisms, it's pretty much free of life. N nothing could live in it. Uh, plants, uh, fish cannot survive in the Dead Sea. It just cannot sustain uh, life. And the reason why it can't 
is because of its amazingly high salt content. About 33.7% of the Dead Sea is salt. Now, just to give you an idea of how salty that, in fact, is, uh, that makes the Dead Sea about 8.6 times saltier than the saltiest ocean on Earth. It is really, really salty. And so because of its high salt content, it has a one pleasant effect. Now, if you have a little cut or you, you didn't shave well and you get into this salt water, you're going to feel it. If you drink too much of it, it'll kill you. But if you just want to float on it, even if you're a non-swimmer, you will succeed. Because of its high salinity, high salt content, it makes you very, very buoyant. And so we've been there. And you can it's really almost impossible to drown, although you can kind of get turned over, and that wouldn't be too good if you went face down in the, uh, in the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is fed only by one water source. Uh, that's the Jordan River, which we know starts way up in the northern part of Israel, flows all the way down and empties out uh, in the northern part of the Dead Sea. And because this body of water is in fact the lowest point on earth, no water flows out of it. The Jordan River flows into it, but water can't flow out because it is so low, far below sea level. So what happens is this. Every day, uh, tons of water in the Dead Sea evaporates. And as it does, it leaves behind minerals like salt. And that explains its intensely high salt content, which is increasing all the time. Now, because of its high salt content, as I mentioned to you, it is essentially dead, such that uh, fish cannot survive in it. But I want to tell you what I think most of you already know. Um, I know and you know of someone who can bring life to that which is dead. Uh, he is the uh, giver of life. And this wonderful uh, giver of life, uh, because he's so kindly predisposed towards us, told us in advance of a day when he, it has to be he, he alone could do this, when in fact, when he would replace the deadness of the intensely dead, dead sea, with marvelous life. And he told us this far in advance through one of his choice spokesmen, a prophet, you've heard of him, his name is Ezekiel. And so Ezekiel recorded by God's superintendence down to this very day with accuracy the prediction of how God would transform death to life. And it is recorded for us in Ezekiel chapter uh, 47, and I would like to call your attention to it. Let's just look through it fairly quickly. Ezekiel chapter 47, a marvelous, marvelous book. I commend it to your reading. We'll just look at this chapter for a little while tonight. This is a vision given to Ezekiel by God well in advance of the fulfillment of its contents. 
How could that be? But wait, wait, see, don't you see? God sees the end from the beginning. That's the reason we ought not fear what the future holds. God has already been there, and he holds on to us. So don't worry about the future. That would be illogical, because God, who is a timeless being, has already taken care of it for us. So here's an evidence of it. Ezekiel chapter 47, verse 1. Then he... Well, you have to ask who the he is. Let me just tell you for the sake of time. The he is an angel. An angel guide. He's been introduced earlier in the book. That's how I know it's an angel. A messenger sent by God to assist Ezekiel. Then he brought me, and the me is Ezekiel speaking here. He brought me uh, back to the door of the house. Do you know what the house is a reference to? It's the temple. But it is a temple not standing yet. It's a temple that will stand during a period of time which we spoke of many weeks ago in a series I did on the future called the Millennial Reign of Christ. And millennial simply stands for 1,000. The Bible tells us that for 1,000 years, the Lord, when he returns, will establish his rule and reign on earth. And by the way, we will share in it with him. He will come from Jerusalem, which will be his capital, and he will lead out from a structure called the temple. It's the millennial. Remember I told you about strange people? in the Dead Sea area, so you're, here is some, those, those, that's Chuck and Mary Lou Cummings right, right over there, having a deeply spiritual time with Ronald. It's in the Dead Sea area. So there will be a temple standing uh, during the millennial period characterized by the Lord's rule and reign here on earth for 1,000 years, and it's that house that the angel guide is leading in a vision Ezekiel through so that he can report about it to us today, though it has not yet happened. And so it says, he brought me back to the door of the house, the temple, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east for the house faced east, the temple, Solomon's, Herod's, the one that will stand during the millennium. They face east, you see. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. And so Ezekiel sees, it's in a vision, he sees water flowing from the threshold of this magnificent temple yet to be constructed, and it is flowing south and east. And verse 2, he brought me out by way of the north gate, many gates in all the temples which have stood on this spot. And so uh, Ezekiel is led out by the angel from the north gate, and it says he led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. The gate that faces east is known as the eastern gate. We know where it is today. It's also known as the double gate because it's characterized by two archways. It's also known as the golden gate. 
It's also known as the gate through which the Lord entered ancient Jerusalem on what we refer to as Palm Sunday. It's also the gate, more importantly, through which the Lord will enter when he comes again. Now, not humble and mounted on a colt, but as the triumphant king of kings, who he in fact is. You know, there's a little problem, though. I suppose we ought to tell the Lord. Uh, the Muslim people have bricked up the eastern gate. I don't know if you knew this. Yet yeah, it's bricked up. And they put a Muslim cemetery right outside it. Any cemetery is sacred, holy ground, and so you can't trample upon it. And they did this to keep the Messiah out. So we better tell him if anyone's in touch with him, you know, to maybe enter another gate. Because this is going to really impede his triumphal entry, is it not? No. You know, all it's going to take is a little old earthquake, and you can kiss your cemetery goodbye. So that's man's vain attempt to, in, to keep the inevitable from happening. Jesus is coming again. So anyway, this is the eastern gate through which the water is flowing. It says, behold, the water was trickling from the south side. See, it's coming out of the eastern gate. And when it does, it's pouring out into a valley called the Kidron Valley. You can visit it even today. This is not... This is not Greek mythology. Do you know that? This is reliable, proven, internally consistent scripture. This is the holy word of God. It's not fanciful storytelling. This is as factual as anything else you're reading in the Bible. So it's flowing out down uh, through the Kidron Valley. Now verse 3. When the man went out toward the east with a line, it's a measuring line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, which equates to about 1,750 feet. You'll notice the angel guide uh, took four measurements. Notice, here's the first. He measured a thousand cubits and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, here's the second time. He measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I couldn't ford for the water had risen, enough water to swim in. A river that could not be forded. So each time the angelic guide took a measurement, every thousand cubits or every 1,750 feet, the water was rising quite a bit. And so first Ezekiel found himself to be in water that was ankle deep, and then it became knee deep, it's really rising, then waist deep, and then it became so deep uh, that he could swim in it. That's how deep it was. And he said to me, verse 6, Son of man, have you seen this? And then he brought me back to the bank of the river. See, he had to stand on the bank because the water was really rising. Now when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. I can't... Uh, I can't... Uh, emphasize enough how dramatic this is. It's a very dry area, folks. 
And now Ezekiel sees a vision of magnificent vegetation on both sides of this, well, I think we could call it river of life. Then he said to me, verse 8, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. It's a desert area, uh, and it's in the Dead Sea area. And then they go toward the sea. So this river of life emanating from the temple um, crosses the Jordan River. Both are mixed together, and they pour themselves into the sea. In this case, it's the Dead Sea. And the waters of the Dead Sea become fresh. Wow. Uh, this body of water so salty that nothing can survive in it. Uh, when it is, um, when it is uh, in touch with the water which comes from the temple, it takes on entirely new characteristics. Now it is no longer characterized by deadness, you see. It's characterized by freshness, by vitality, and by life. Now, the temple in Jerusalem is about 24 miles away from the Dead Sea, just to give you an idea. So the flow of this river is about 24 miles. And uh, just to give you an idea of how far it is going down, uh, Jerusalem is about 2,430 feet above sea level. I mentioned that the Dead Sea is oh, uh, approximately 1,300 feet below sea level. So this river of life is flowing about 24 miles southeast and in its course it is dropping about 3700 feet and the waters of the sea become fresh this body of water which is now over eight times saltier than the saltiest ocean on earth suddenly becomes salt free and when it does this is what happens verse 9 it'll come about that Every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish. For these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Everything will live where the river goes. The deadness of the Dead Sea will be transformed. Who other than God can do it? It's supernatural intervention which transforms deadness into life. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it from En Gedi. We have visited En Gedi on a prior Wednesday night. To En Eglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, that's the Mediterranean, very many. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. Why? See, the Dead Sea itself will become completely fresh. However, swamps and marshes around it will not. They will be left for salt. Why? Let me just suggest something. Do you know too much salt is not good for you? We know that. It can kill you. On the other hand, in order to survive, you need some salt. 
Well, I don't have to know that because the giver of life knows that. You know what else he knows? He knows that the Dead Sea is Israel's number one source of salt. He made promises to Israel which stand in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. That ought to be meaningful to you because he made promises to you which stand in spite of your unfaithfulness as well. It's called amazing grace, you say. And so God knows that Israel, even during the time of the millennial reign of her Messiah, will need salt. And so he provides a place whereby Israel can be sustained. I think it's God's way of reminding us through Ezekiel, take no care for your life. He knows about everything we need. It's not just about Israel. It's about everyone who's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think he has brought us this far just to abandon us in the deadness of the Dead Sea? Do you not think he's going to bring us through the wilderness wanderings of this life into our promised land? The Bible says, he who did not even hold back from providing his own son for us, though undeserving we are, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? You need salt? God will give you salt. I mean, if he gave you a savior, surely he'll give you salt. Stop worrying. Do you mind if I tell you that worrying even though I know it's common to man, is sinful. Worrying means lack of confidence in God, the giver of life, to see us through the deadness of the places in life where our souls are parched. He can provide for us water, life-giving water, even in the Dead Sea area. And so it says in verse 12, by the river on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. If you visit the Dead Sea, you say, you got to be kidding. No can be. Yes, it could. God could. You know what God could do? God could say, let there be trees. And you know what trees say? Yes, sir. Do you know where the only element in creation order that exercises the option to tell the commander-in-chief, no, sir, everything else falls in line. There will be trees and special trees. Their leaves will not wither. Whoever heard of such a thing? Their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month. Why? Because their water flows from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves ah, for healing. There will be a day when hunger will be virtually eradicated. There will be a day when sickness will be virtually eradicated. We're not in heaven yet. Then it won't be almost eradicated. It'll be totally eradicated. Preceding it during the earthly millennial reign of Christ, we still have those maladies, but not nearly to the extent we are affected by them today. It's because of the river of life which is flowing from the throne of God, from the sanctuary, headquartered, placed in Jerusalem. So here is the life lesson I wish 
you would derive along with me from our visit to the Dead Sea. Look, folks, I live in this world just like you. I can get as disgusted with it as you can. I is. I can become as potentially hopeless as perhaps you are. I can get as pessimistic, as irritable, as moody as anybody else. I know that. But I think that too is sin. You see, here too is the, is, here's the life lesson which I, I think we should derive from the Dead Sea. Though the world will not get better, it won't. Read the Bible. Though the world will not get better, still the best is yet to come. I'm not speaking out of both sides of my mouth. I'm just telling you the world as we know it is not getting better. It's not going to. Read the Bible. It says we're going from bad to worse. But though that is the case, be hopeful. Because the best is yet to come. I'm not waiting for a certain administration in Washington, D.C. to make it all right. In spite of good intentions, they're not able even if there are good intentions. Even if the economy picks up a little bit, I think that'll be a short-run thing. I mean, could you carry any bit of the indebtedness our government is carrying and still survive? It's going to break down. It's going to collapse. Hooray! It's corrupted. I, hooray! I don't want it repaired. I want it replaced. I want the deadness of every institution of life. Because of the spiritual deadness of those of us apart from the giver of life, I want all that to be transformed. I want the deadness of the dead sea to teem with life. Because of the waters, living waters, which emanate from the throne of Jesus the Messiah, headquartered from the temple in Jerusalem. Folks, Ezekiel speaks to us of a river of life. But a river of life has already been mentioned in the Bible in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, a river of life watered paradise, the Garden of Eden. And it gives us a description of how wonderful things were before the fall of humankind when man and women had such a wonderful relationship with their creator. Genesis 2 is a picture for us, don't you see, of paradise lost. But Ezekiel's vision is a reminder to us that paradise lost will be paradise regained. Though the world will not get better, don't worry about it. The best is still yet to come. Ezekiel told us that the river of life will indeed flow from Jerusalem, from the throne of Jesus the Messiah. He will make all things which are dead alive. He'll take care of it. So my fellow Christians, here's what's happening to too many of us, myself included. 
we're accepting the headlines as ultimate truth. They're just vaguely accurate descriptions of what is now. They're not even that accurate. But they just describe what is now. But they don't tell us what Ezekiel chapter 47 told us. So yeah, I read the headlines. I kind of want to be up on the stuff, see what's going on. <laughs> but God is enabling us to jump way past that. Way past it. He said, let me reveal to you in advance that though things ain't so hot where you is, the best is yet to come. <laughs> Because I'm going to transform deadness to life. And just to give you a little hint of it, look in the mirror. You were once the dead sea. And now you're teeming with the very fruit of my spirit. You had no reason to be. You were dead to spiritual realities. You were not alive to biblical truth. You had no love, no joy, no peace, no goodness, no kindness, no self-control. Now all those things inhabit you. I have created in you a life-sustaining, a spiritual life-sustaining environment. You ought to believe me when I say I'm going to do that to the entire universe in which you will live. So my fellow Christians, the world in which we are now placed may indeed be hopeless, but we dare not be a hopeless people while we are placed in this world. We ought to be smiling. We ought to be rejoicing. I don't mean laughing at pain. I don't mean that. We ought to be confident in the fact that the Lord Jesus is going to keep his word. And all that we're seeing ought to be a wonderful reminder to us that what the best of us cannot do, no pastors, no politicians, no police authority, no armies, no counselors, what none of us can do, God is going to do. And just as living waters have flowed into my life and yours, those of us who have personally connected with the Lord Jesus, now ascended and seated on the throne, so too in that day, once again, uh, rivers of living water will emanate from the throne which he will establish in Jerusalem, and he will make all things new. Old things will pass away. If there's a people group on earth who ought to be on top of things and not overwhelmed by it, it ought to be us. I'm ashamed of myself. I must tell you at times when I watch the evening news and allow it to start a downward spiral of hopeless despair and depression and sometimes such a negative, cynical point of view that my neighbors see a grumpy white-haired guy <laughs> on his way to church to worship the king of kings who's not able to go through the golden gate who can't straighten out what's crooked who can't speak life into that which is dead it's not true is it he can do all of those things 
When I was a new Christian, we had a song that nobody knows about. I sang it one time, and it was so miserable. I'll not do it again. But here are the words. Cheer up, ye saints of God. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing to make you feel afraid. There's nothing to make you doubt. Remember, Jesus never fails. So why not trust him and shout? You'll be sorry you worried at all tomorrow morning. What are we thinking about? News? <laughs> we ought to th be thinking about the one who can speak life into deadness and who may be returning sooner than we think. Now let me apologize to those of you who don't know the Lord Jesus as personal Savior. None of what I just shared with you applies. You're lost. You're dead. And you will go on in your spiritual deadness, your separation from God, on into eternity. But I remember Jesus said one time, if you come to me and ask me, I will give you waters of life, a spring of water, which wells up from your innermost being, if you ask me. Wow. You know what I wish he would do? I wish he wouldn't invite you to ask him. I wish he would just force you to. But that's me. I'm not God. You know what he wants? Voluntary response to his loving provision. That's what he wants. Would you like to accept the Lord Jesus Christ tonight? If so, he will change you from the inside out. You might, in fact, know that you need him because you're kind of dead. You're stuck. You're not able to do anything to get over what is putting you under. And you're kind of dead to God, are you not? You're the person who says, I made an attempt to pray to him, but I feel like my prayers are hitting the ceiling and coming back. Do you mind if I make you feel worse? <clears throat> I don't feel that. I feel every time I talk to him, he hears. What's your problem? Mind if I tell you what it is? You're dead. You're dead. You have to be born anew. That's what the Bible means when it says be born again. Could I encourage you even when you sit? Do you know this could be the moment when your parched soul is watered by the very Spirit of God? Do you mind bowing your heads just for a second so you can have an undistracted moment uh, just as we prepare uh, to hear from our pastor? C could I just ask you to take a moment? I'm afraid that because this is so easy, some may stumble over it because you're trying so hard to offer something to God. You know what he says? This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. The hardest thing for you to admit is that you can't do anything to win God's favor. All you can do is accept the fact he is intensely desirous of loving you, forgiving you, cleansing you, watering your parched soul, and transforming the deadness of your life so that you could live the abundant life now and the eternal life to come. 
So repeat after me if you feel so moved right where you sit. Lord Jesus, forgive me. I've sinned. It has caused a separation. No wonder I'm so thirsty. Would you come into my life? I believe you suffered so I no longer have to. Died so I could live. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for being pierced through on a cross for me. Come into my life. Change me from the inside out. You're my only hope. In fact, I put my hope and trust in you as my Savior and as my Lord. I repent. I turn away from self-government. I'm not good at being my own God. I turn to you. Be my Savior. Come into my life. It's been characterized by the deadness of the Dead Sea. Let my life teem with the good things you offer. And I believe when you do that, Lord Jesus, I will be irreversibly connected to you now and forevermore. This I pray in Jesus' name. 